For those joining us online, we are so glad to have you worshiping with us today. And uh, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever wished that you could have a do-over in life? You ever had that thought, if, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done things differently? Anyone can relate to that this morning? I, I know there's some things that we learn the hard way, right? But there's some things that could have been easily avoided if we knew then what we knew now. Maybe there was a, a moment that you would have acted differently or, or maybe something that you would have decided differently. I, I know we all wish we could have a do-over on things that we've said, right? Uh, we wish that we knew then what we knew now. It, you know what's the worst is when learning uh, life experiences are, like, those life experiences are often expensive, Anyone ever had an expensive learning, life learning experience? I, I remember as a kid, my, my first car was a real piece of junk. And uh, so I got it, it was really cheap as a piece of junk. But so then I wanted to get something a little nicer. And, uh, and so I found that I could lease a car and it was a lot cheaper than buying a car. I could have all the bells and whistles. I could have the seat heater and, and the sunroof for, for a fraction of the price to own a car. And so I, I leased my first car uh, at 20 years old, and it was awesome. It was great. And then the lease came due, and I got my second lease car. By this time, I'm married. Uh, this time, my wife and I, her car was a piece of junk, and so we used my car uh, more often than not. And, and it was great. We had all the, the new car accessories and a fraction of the price on the lease uh, until the lease came due. And then I realized that I owed $8,000 overage mileage, of mileage overage. How many knew in that moment that I wished I could have a do-over in that moment? If I knew then what I, what, what I know now, I, you know, now I do not lease cars anymore. I know it doesn't work for me. Life lessons are often expensive lessons. But, but you know, as we gain knowledge and we gain experience, we add to our wisdom and we add to our insight in life. And, and as we mature and change, our desires change and our responses change. And really, we're a different person now than we used to be. How many are, how many, you're a different person than you used to be? I hope that you are. I hope you're growing and changing. Sometimes it's like learning life lessons the hard way, and sometimes it's just maturing. You did the best you could back then, but now you do it differently. I'm a different person than I used to be, and because I'm a different person, I do things differently than I used to do them. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this letter he writes to the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, is, it's been one of my favorite books ever since I was a teenager. Ever since I really started studying the Word of God, I've always loved Ephesians. And, and even though I understand it way uh, differently now than I did as a teenager, I've always loved it for the richness that it seemed to hold, it, the insight about our identity in Christ and this new life that we live as a result. You know, and if anyone had experienced a new way of living, uh, based on their new life in Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, as the author of Ephesians, and, and we know as he writes this letter, you know, around 63 AD, uh, and we, we see at the end of the letter that he's writing from a place of imprisonment. He's in a, a Roman prison cell where he's been in, uh, incarcerated for inciting mischief. He's been proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is sent to set captives free and to heal the brokenhearted, to 
to rule with heavenly authority. And because of that, he has been in prison for inciting mischief. You know, it's this ironic turn of events that he is imprisoned for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus uh, because he was the, uh, one of the, the loudest ones railing against these Jesus followers, imprisoning them and, and uh, applauding their death at one point. And so if you're unfamiliar with Paul's story, uh, you could read that on your own time in Acts chapter eight and nine, how God stopped him dead in his tracks and, and uh, in his persecution of Christians and called him to this prolific witness and proclamation of the gospel message. And so we see Paul, he goes on to write 13 of these New Testament books uh, that we cherish uh, in our scripture uh, in the New Testament today. And so Ephesians has been called by some theologians the crown jewel of Paul's theology, the crown jewel of Paul's writings. And so we see in Paul's writings, he writes these letters, and most often the letters he writes are written to specific individuals or specific churches. And really you see in the letter that he's writing that he is addressing uh, specific issues and, and, uh, and particular questions that have been made to, to him. But Ephesians is a little different than any of his other writings because they're not addressed specifically to someone and there's not really addressing specific issues. Really what we see in Ephesians is a summary of Paul's theology. Uh, we see in Ephesians he's giving a master class of what it is to live life, uh, the Christian life. Uh, Ephesians wasn't originally written, as you might or may not know, uh, the Bible wasn't originally written with chapters and verses. Uh, it was one long letter, and chapter one is actually one run-on sentence. Any teachers in the house? Uh, any uh, editors? Uh, Ephesians one is one giant sentence. He's just like uh, excited to be writing what he's writing, but chapters and verses, they weren't added until about the 12th uh, century uh, to help the modern readers. Easier to find verses when there's like a, a verse beside it than, you know, searching through all the pages trying to find one line of text. But Ephesians, we see, is divided into two sections, really, uh, even though it wasn't formally written that way, but the content has two sections, and it's almost symmetrical. We see in chapters 1 to 3, and then we see a symmetry in 4 to 6. In chapters 1 to 3, we see Paul is talking a lot about theology, and in chapters uh, uh, 4 to 5, we see he's talking a lot about ethics. In chapters 1, he's talking about orthodoxy, what is right believing. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he's talking about orthopraxy. How do we live this out? What he's really saying is our beliefs and then our behavior. He's talking about our privileges of being in Christ. And then he's talking about our responsibilities as a result. We see in chapters 1 to 3 that he's talking about the, uh, the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. And then he talks about the spiritual walk that we live out in this world. We see that God sees us in Christ in the first half. And then we see how the world sees Christ in us in the second half. And then really what we see is that the root of our faith in the first half, and it flourishes into the fruit of our faith, in the second half of the book. And so we see this kind of growing contrast in the book of Ephesians. John Stott, a pastor and theologian, he says the whole letter is a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. It's Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must do as a consequence. 
Really, the question Paul is saying in this first half is, what do you allow to define you? What defines your identity? What defines your ways of thinking? What defines your way of approaching God? What do you believe? Because that will determine how you behave. How many know that how you believe determines how you behave? Right? And, and, and so right thinking leads, leads to right living. And that's, that's what Paul is really establishing in this book. And what we really see here is that what begins in the heavenlies, he's going to take it really practical. And by the end of the book, he's going to say what begins in the heavenlies finds its way to our home. I've heard the criticism of, of people before. I said, you know, sometimes my parents, they, they really were a spiritual kind of spiritual church, heavenly kind of person, but it didn't translate to home life. How many know that when we are in Christ, it translates to how we act at home and how we act at the office and, and how we walk it out? And so if you wanted a summary of Ephesians 2, uh, this is my favorite verse of the whole Bible. This is my life verse, Ephesians 2.10. Uh, we're not going to preach on it today. Pastor Adrian gets that in a couple weeks. But it says, we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I mean, that's a good life verse. If you don't have a life verse, we can share a life verse together if you want. You can share mine until you get your own. But this is the thing. We're not who we used to be. We've been made new in Christ Jesus. And as a result of this new life in Christ comes new ways of living. And so that's what Paul is going to talk about in Ephesians. So turn in your Bibles if you have them to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be embarking on a journey over the next nine weeks together, unpacking some of this amazing truth, letting it shape our beliefs about God and ourselves and those around us, and, and how to live out those beliefs in practical God-honoring ways. This is a series we've called Made New. Now, I hope you got your stretchy pants on. Anyone, you like to go to the buffet and you wear your stretchy pants at the buffet? Paul does not leave, you know, he does not, he just gets right to it. There's no, he, chapter one, we're going to dive in. We got a lot to get through today. So I hope you got your spiritual stretchy pants on. Ephesians 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And so we open this letter. We see right here we have the author, the apostle Paul. We have his audience here. Now it's interesting, I'll let you know this a little aside, that the original manuscripts don't say that this is to the Ephesians. That was a later edition at some point. This letter is believed to have been circulated throughout the churches. Paul uh, planted a lot of churches, and this letter was sent out, and they would circulate them. And at some point, the Ephesians either claimed it for themselves, or, or maybe it was originally sent to them. We don't know. But, but it was added a little bit later on that it's to the Ephesians. But, but we see here the audience that he's writing to are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. He's writing to believers who have been made new in Jesus. Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Everyone said great pleasure. Great pleasure. 
So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. And he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. I told you, Paul is like right out of the gate. He's like, let's go. He's like, I got so much goodness to write about God. Let's just get right to it. And the first thing I want us to think about this morning is that you are part of a bigger story. You're part of a bigger story. How many of you know, if you're anything like me, that you're tempted at times to think that you are the star of your story? Anyone ever tempted it? You know, we go through life, don't we? There's, we all have a little diva in us, you know? Turn to your neighbor and say, I have some diva in me. <laughs> Tell them that. It's true, right? We're the star of our story. Everything we process is, how do I feel about this? What do I need? What do I want? What do I deserve? How does this affect me, right? We're the star of our story, if you ever watched a good movie or a good TV series, you know that there's always like the main story. You always have the protagonist, the main character, right? And, and every good story has, has uh, spin-off stories. And the spin-off stories are the stories of the supporting cast. And, like if you're watching The Avengers, right, you could go on Disney Plus right now, you could watch Hawkeye. Hawkeye, like he's cool, but he's not the main character of The Avengers, right? You can watch Star Wars. Star Wars is about Luke Skywalker, right? But then Han Solo gets his own like spin-off show. He's not the star of the show. You're not the star of your story. They're part, you're part of a bigger story. It's a story that began at the formation of the world. We'll get into that in a moment, but there's a headlining character who is the star of the story. 27 times through Ephesians, and so many times in the passage we're going to read today, we'll see that Paul writes this repeating phrase. He says, in Christ, through Christ, with Christ. Jesus Christ is the star of the story that God's been directing since the start of the world. And we are the supporting cast. Tell your neighbor, we gotta be interactive today. Tell them you're not the star of the story. You're not the star of the story. Jesus is the star of the story that God's directing. But here's the good news. Being associated has its privileges. Anyone ever had like the privileges, the reward card of being associated, of being affiliated? Being affiliated with Jesus comes with privileges. Verse 3 says, praise God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. If you have your Bible, you might want to circle every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because... You're awesome, and you're the star. No, because we are united with Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours because you're united with Christ. What are spiritual blessings? Paul goes on to describe them. He says that God loved us, so he chose us. It says that he decided in advance to adopt us. It says here that he is rich in kindness and grace, and as a result, he purchased our freedom. It says here that he forgave our sins. What are the riches and the spiritual blessings of being in Jesus? It's that you're chosen. You're chosen. How many ever got, you were last to get picked for the team, right? You're the kid in gym class. I want you to know that you're part of the team. You're wanted, you're chosen. You're valued. God chose you. It says that he adopted you. You belong to the family of God. 
I think I shared in one of the first weeks that I am actually adopted. Uh, Ten days old, my parents picked me up from the hospital. And so, Mom and Dad, if you're watching, thank you so much for this life that you've given me. But here's the thing about being adopted. I was chosen. Some of your parents got stuck with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> but adoption is intentional. Adoption comes with a cost. I remember, I only have a few documents from my adoption process, but my parents had to like go through, there was a cost to adoption, and they put that forward. I was pursued. My parents were saying, hey, we can't have kids of our own, but we want to share our love and our resources with someone else, and so I thank you, Mom and Dad, for that. There's an adoption. That's what God's done for you. You're chosen. God's not stuck with you. He's chosen you. He's intentionally about pursuing you, and it came at a cost. It says here that he freed us from slavery. The imagery of this time is that uh, we, we think of slavery uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, like uh, coming across the American slavery, really. Uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern slavery was a little different. There's a lot of transaction to it. Oftentimes, people would put them into slavery, uh, put themselves into slavery because they couldn't afford a bill or a debt. They would try to uh, earn uh, a, a way out or, or they were born into it. But really, what we have here is a sense that, that God purchased us with the purpose of setting us free. He purchased us in slavery with the purpose of setting us free uh, to a better life, to freedom. And this is that we've been forgiven. What are the spiritual blessings of being united with, God, uh, with Jesus? Ultimately, we get God. We get God. What is the spiritual blessing? We get God. And in getting God's presence in our lives, we also get God's, God's involvement in our lives. We get his presence, and we also get his power. We get his provision. Every spiritual blessing is a result of God giving himself to us. What do you get with being in Christ? You get God. And in God, you have it all. Notice the tone that Paul sets out his theology, his understanding of God. There's an old sermon from uh, about 100 years ago called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, as I read this tone, I, I, don't, I see a different tone. Paul's portrait of God isn't this stern, disapproving, distant God who's displeased with his creation and demanding uh, you know, that every violation be repaid with retribution. What we see here is instead the picture of a father knowing how sin will affect his creation sets out in advance a plan of redemption to bring humanity to himself, to be reunited. Uh, Luch Lombardo, uh, Lombardi, he writes this, he says, Paul identifies God's aim as ensuring that humanity is in relationship with him and shows how God acts in the person of Jesus to accomplish this, connecting humanity with him forever. It originated in God's heart and love for us that he would want us to be in relationship with him. Now it's important as we work through passages uh, like this that sometimes the text presents challenges and difficulties and as we acknowledge them, sometimes they need a little extra work to understand. Uh, one of those is presented here in verse four and five. It says, even before he made the world, God chose us in Christ. And verse 5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us, or maybe your translation uses the word predestined us in advance. 
Now, when it comes to interpreting the Bible and understanding the biblical text, we have to understand that sometimes there are interpretive lenses that we're coming to the text with. Some of us have a church, we grew up with a church background. Uh, maybe some, there's some, some Baptist backgrounds or some Presbyterian or, or Reformed theology backgrounds. And they come with this lens of Calvinism. Calvinism is a way of interpreting scripture. Others of us who grew up in Methodist or Wesleyan, Pentecostal, charismatic uh, circles, and we have a lens called Arminianism. And uh, those, are, uh, those are two guys, Calvin and Ar Arminius, uh, were from the 16th century, and they were trying to understand the theology and, and putting forward how they see uh, the scriptures unfolding. And so it's important to look at those and try to understand what other people have learned, but really we want to be biblicists, right? Really we want to say, what is God saying in this text for ourselves? The theological tension that we see here is called the doctrine of election, now, some believers would believe that God chooses some individuals to salvation and not others. That God predestines or predetermines some to be in Christ, to be saved, and others not, which we know results in damnation, separation from God. Now, one of the things we need to apply here in our interpretation is that Paul is a Jewish thinker. As a Jewish thinker, in the first century, uh, he's a little different than we are. We are very hyper-individualistic, aren't we? We think of ourselves in terms of individualism. Uh, uh, it was Greek thought to be individualistic, but for the Jew, they think often in uh, community. They think often in people groups and societal and corporate thinking. And it comes back, you know, in the Old Testament where God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you but what God was really was saying was, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. From you will become a people and all the people. I'm not blessing you, the individual. I'm blessing the people who will come through you. In other words, God's plan was always for a people group and not for individual people. What we see here isn't God choosing or predetermining individuals who will believe in Jesus, but he's choosing believing individuals and predetermine them to a predetermined end. So what I'm saying is not about predetermining who will be in Christ, but he's talking about predetermining what will become of those who are in Christ. Think about it this way. An airline can predetermine a flight. You can book a flight, and tomorrow the flight, uh, you know, A307 is going to depart from Kelowna at 10 a.m., and it's going to head to Vancouver. The flight is predetermined. From, it's been predestined for that flight to go. And uh, one way of looking at it is that we've already determined who, what, we've already chosen what passengers are going to be on that flight. Or we can open up the flight that whoever is on the flight has been predetermined to arrive in Vancouver. And so we see here, Paul is writing this letter to who? To faithful followers. They're already on the plane. Paul's saying, all of us on this plane are predetermined to arrive in Vancouver because we are on the flight. Let's get a little clear with this as we jump to verse 12. I'll skip over 9 and 11. I'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 12, watch who he's talking about here. People groups, not individuals. Verse 12, God's purpose that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. 
And now that you Gentiles have heard the truth, another people group, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. It says here that you are in when you've heard the truth and believed of Jesus. It's not that you've been predestined to believe in Jesus, but uh, uh, it says that you are in when you believed in Jesus, and when you believed, he identified you as his own. It's clear that God's dealing with groups of people and not individuals. We see that even in Jesus' own interaction, don't we? Because he talks to the Pharisees who believed that they were in by a nature of just being Jewish. As an individual who is a Jew, I'm in. And, Paul, and Jesus said to them, no, it doesn't work that way. And says, God's given the group the opportunity to be in, but you still need to decide to be in. And the same way with the Gentiles right here in verse 13, he's not saying all Gentiles are in. He's saying all Gentiles are welcomed in, but you need to choose to believe in Jesus to be in. John 3.16 says that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we see here that God is predestining not those who would believe, but the predestining the end for those who do believe. So the first thing we see here is that you're not the star of the story. You're part of a bigger story that God's unfolding. Second thing we see here is that God has a will and a plan. He has a will and a plan. Verse uh, 9, we'll come back up to verse 9. It says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. I like that. God's will is to fulfill his plan. I love it. And this is the plan, that at the right time, he will bring everything. Everyone say, say everything. He'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ Everything in heaven and on earth. God's will is to fulfill God's plan. And God's plan is that everything everywhere, on heaven and on earth, everything everywhere be under the authority of Jesus Christ. You can say that God's plan is Jesus over everything. That's the plan of God. Jesus over sickness and disease. Jesus over sin. Jesus over addiction. Jesus over hurt. Jesus over brokenness. Jesus over your life. Jesus over my life. Jesus over everything is the plan of God. How many are excited about that plan? You know, as we talk about the will of God for a moment, as Christians, we obviously want to be in the will of God. And as we think about being in the will of God, you know, uh, it's helpful sometimes, you know, what's God's will for my life? You know, we might think, well, where does God want me to go to school? Or what's God's career plan for me? Uh, who should I date or marry? Anybody want to know that today? What's God's will for my life? Obviously, God doesn't have different wills. It's not like he has multiple wills. He has one will. And it's not conflicting or contradicting each other. But it's helpful to sometimes break down God's will into three aspects of his will. Three uh, different ways of seeing his will. And ultimately, we have God's sovereign will. And so I can write that on the circle. God's sovereign will. This is God's overarching will. This is God's plan and purpose. These are the works of God. 
These are God's will, you know, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge. This is what God is working out from the beginning of eternity. He is bringing this about to pass. It doesn't matter what our involvement in it. This is what God wills to be done. Ephesians 1.9, like we said, his will is that everything everywhere would be under the authority of Jesus. God's ultimate will, his sovereign will, is Jesus over everything. This is his desired outcome. And through this, we also see his will, if we were to skip down to verse 14 for a minute, his will is that uh, he did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Jesus over everything, and he wants us to be united with Christ. And as a result of that, we will bring praise and glory to him. This is God's sovereign will. This is what God's will will be done no matter what. One way to ensure that we are in the center of God's will then is to make sure that we are worshiping him. Romans 12.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. God wants us to be saved surrendered to him. He wants us to be united with Christ. He wants us to be made new in Jesus, which results in our worship of him, living for him. That's God's sovereign will. We also see God's moral will. If God's sovereign will was about the works of God, then his moral will is about the ways of God. This is about uh, Deuteronomy 11.23. says, be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways and holding tightly to him. God's ways, it's his commands, his principles, his precepts. This is the ethic that he wants us to live. We see that his ways are really an expression of his character. And as we live out God's ways, his moral way, our will, we are reflecting the character of God to the world around us. Psalm 86, 11, King David says, Teach me your ways, O God, that I may live according to your truth. Give me purity of heart that I may honor you. See, we often think about God's will in terms of what does God want us to do, but really what God is showing us here, the emphasis is more on who he wants us to be than what he wants us to do. You know, Jesus, the ultimate revelation of who God is, he came and in the Sermon on the Mount, he challenged the religious way of thinking. The religious way of thinking was all about what do we do as a result of following God. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not just what you do, it's what you be. They, they said, don't do murder. And Jesus said, well, don't be angry. You know, their way of thinking was, don't do adultery. And Jesus was like, no, no, don't be lustful. And so we see that Jesus is talking about who we are. God is less uh, concerned about where we are and what we're doing than who we are becoming. If you be the right person, you'll do the right things. And so how do we find out what God's moral will is for our lives? We go to scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Friends, 95% of God's will for your life 
is already recorded in Scripture. It's already written down. Who God wants you to be is already revealed to you through his commands and his principles and the ethics that he wants you to live. Here's the thing about following God's revealed will through Scripture. Is we're often saying, God, what do you want me to do with my life? How, what do you want, how, do, how do I apply this specifically to here and now? And if we struggle to do what God's already revealed to us to do, then we're gonna struggle to really understand what God wants from us today. Paul Tripp, he says, many people seeking guidance don't actually need guidance. What they need is to faithfully obey what God has already revealed in his word. So we ensure that we're at the center of God's sovereign will by worshiping him. We ensure that we're at the center of God's moral will by being in his word and allowing it to shape our actions. Which brings us to this final sphere. It's God's directive will. This is our walk. This is the day-to-day. This is where we kind of tend to focus. This is like the 5%. Like, God, where do you want me to work? Where do you want me to go to school? What do you want me to do with my life? And sometimes I think God has direction for us. But often this is what I think. When you're in God's sovereign will, worshiping him, when you're in God's moral will, you're living life for him, that I think God's directive will, unless he specifically puts in your heart to do something, most often it's whatever you want. When my kids come to me and they say, hey, what what can I have for dessert? I say, whatever you want, as long as you've eaten your veggies and had your real, you know what I mean? I say, when you do the main things, then God's, when we come to God and Proverbs 3, 6 says, seek his will in all you do, and then he'll show you what path to take. Uh, I love Psalm 37, it says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. When I'm in God's will, in his sovereign will, I'm worshiping him, when I'm in his word, applying it to my life, I'm letting it transform who I am. My desires and will reflect his. And unless he somehow has something specific of guidance, often it's like whatever's in your heart is what God wants you to do for your life. We could talk more about that, but we've got to keep going because we're running short on time. This buffet, anyone getting full already? Your stretchy pants are coming to their uh, end. Here's the thing. When you're in God's will, you're in God's will. What I mean by that is when you're in God's will, you're in God's will. When you're in right relationship with Jesus and with God, he's written you into his will. The Bible says here that there is an inheritance Verse 11 says, because you are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. When you're in God's will... You're in his will. He has an inheritance for us. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantor, that this will come to pass. We're going to talk a bit more about that next week. I want to close with this story, though. It's not from Paul. It's from me. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man. And he was, had a devoted young son. And together, they shared a passion for art collecting. Together they traveled the world and added only the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, many others adorned their walls of their family home. 
The widowed elder man, he looked on with satisfaction his only child became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they dealt at art, with art collectors around the world. As winter approached, war engulfed the nation, and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a message. His beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. With days, within days, his fears were confirmed. The young man had died while rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man was overcome with sadness. One morning, a knock at the door awakened the depressed old man. As he walked to the door, the masterpieces of art on the walls only reminded him that his son was no longer coming home. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hands. He introduced himself to the man, saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one whom he rescued when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man's son had told everyone of his father's love for fine art. I'm an artist, the soldier said, and I wanted to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal the portrait of the man's son. Though the world would never consider the work a masterpiece or the work of a genius, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture above the fireplace. A few, year, a few hours later, after the soldier had left, the old man set about his task. True to his word, the painting went above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars of paintings. And when the man sat in his chair, he spent the evening gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, his fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease the grief. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which the museums around the world clamored. He told his neighbors it was the greatest gift that he had ever received. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away, and the art world was in anticipation with the collector's passing and his only son dead, these paintings would soon be sold at an auction. The day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered around to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled this day. Greatness would be achieved as many would claim to have the greatest collection of art. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was a painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid and the room was silent. Who'll open the bidding with $100, he asked. Seconds passed and no one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about the painting? It's just a picture of his son. Forget about it and get on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. No, we have to deal with this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke and said, well, will you take $10 for the painting? I, that's all I have. You know, I knew the boy. I'd kind of like to have it. I have $10. Will 
Will anyone go higher? Called the auctioneer. After more silence, he said, going once, going twice, sold. As the gavel fell, cheers filled the room and everyone exclaimed, now we can get on with it. Now we can bid on the treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room and someone spoke up and said, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for the picture of some guy's son. What about all these other paintings? What about the millions of dollars of art here? I demand an explanation of what's going on. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. Friends, when you're in God's will, you're in God's will. As Paul opens Ephesians, he begins with this love of a father, a father whose greatest joy came from his son, a son who went away and gave his life to rescue others. And because of that father's love, whoever takes the son gets it all. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And as you do, we have received the inheritance of being chosen. We have received the inheritance of being adopted. We've experienced the gift of freedom and of, of, uh, 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 of forgiveness. And ultimately, in being made new in Christ Jesus, we've received God and God's presence and power at work in our lives. Verse 14 says that all of this was done so that we would worship and glorify Him. This is the second we're going to worship and glorify God together. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, today is the perfect day to say, Jesus, I want to receive the gift of salvation. I want to be in you. I want to receive all that God has for me. I want to be chosen, adopted, free, and forgiven. Today would be the perfect day to say, God, I put my trust in you. I'm stopping living my life for myself. I'm going to surrender and submit to your authority. Jesus over everything in my life. So Lord, I pray in this moment as we worship you, as we praise you for all that you are and all that you've done in us and for us, I pray, God, that, that there would be some faith rising in this house, God, that there would be some freedom in this house, that there would be some heaviness lifting and some bondage lifting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.